Namaste and good evening to all of you. Welcome to this first actual evening of our Shakti festival. It's our second evening of presentation, but as a day is the first day. And um, in this evening we are going to have a great activity, a night of devotion of Kirtan and Bhajan, and therefore um, it is all based on bhakti. Bhakti yoga is a process which uh, occasionally is used in Agama yoga. We cannot say that we are a school which is predominantly of bhakti yoga. There are schools, branches, orientations, spiritual lineages in India which are 99%, 100% based on bhakti. For them the bhakti is the alpha and the omega. For us the bhakti is one of the many branches of yoga. Nevertheless, the bhakti is a very beautiful way of using the heart. It is a very beautiful way of using the human soul, those parts of the human soul that I was talking about in, in a satsang not long time ago, that the soul of the human being is made of a rational part, of a desiring part, and of a fiery part as classified by St. Peter of Damascus. And those parts of the heart, they have to converge, they have to focus on the divine presence. This is called generally Bhakti Yoga, and it is the essence of many, many religions and many, many forms of spirituality. And it is based on the fact that the heart always finds its way. As some of you who have been in yoga for at least for a month or two, or especially if you have been in yoga for a longer time, you know that we are talking about chakras, we are talking about the predominance of an energy in the aura, we are talking about the predominant resonance, we are talking about the fact that the resonance can be altered and not flowing freely and accurately in some circumstances. We are talking about the five bodies and the fact that one body can be more impure and another body can be more pure in its resonance. We are talking about the fact that the chakras have sublevels and the planes of the universe have subplanes. And when you study it technologically, like from the standpoint of Raja Yoga, of Laya Yoga, of Kundalini Yoga, of all those technical yogas, everything appears as very not necessarily complicated, but it has to be very accurate from a technological standpoint. And if I'm depressed, if uh, I am in the dark night of the soul, if I am in whatever emotional or mental or existential state, there's always an explanation according to the resonance. And because there is an explanation, there is always a solution. However, in Bhakti Yoga, that is not what is being done. Bhakti Yoga cuts the corners. Bhakti Yoga cuts through the whole thing and it simply says your heart finds the way. It's a matter of love, it's a matter of devotion and with your heart you are just merging. Your heart has like a magnet. It just goes into the direction of its goal. And thus, Bhakti Yoga, even if you don't know much of the technical forms of yoga, Bhakti Yoga will still work. In the famous 
tantric treatise, the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, where there are described 112 methods for reaching superconsciousness, for reaching enlightenment. And this text claims that it basically can teach you all the techniques for reaching enlightenment that are possible. It claims itself to be archetypal. One of those 112 shlokas, of course, refers to the love, to the bhakti. Because, of course, any fool who would write such a text would know that, hey, history shows that there were people who were great lovers of God and they reached enlightenment. Period. And that shloka, that verse from the Vigyana Bhairava, is in some translations, it's translated as the shortest of all of them. In the Paul Reps translation, it's translated just of two words. Like the whole, all the others are intricate technologies, going to the 36 tadvas and doing this and doing that. And that shloka, which talks about the path of bhakti yoga, basically says two words. It says, devotion freeze. You become free because of devotion. Devotion makes one free. That's all. Like you don't need to know more. Devotion freeze. How exactly? With a resonance, with nobody cares. Devotion freeze. Period. And this is the beauty of bhakti yoga. That there is a lot of learning in some forms of yoga. And there is a lot of technology. And some of us love that technology. There are some people like myself who rely heavily on that technology. And without that technology would feel lost. And nevertheless there are some people for whom when the technology doesn't seem to work. The heart works. Finds its way. Like you can meditate on time. Like Albert Einstein did. And meditating on time took to Albert Einstein from the age of 15 or 16 when he first heard about this thing with the light speed, light beams traveling at light speed from the universe. So he started at the age of 15, 16, 17. I forgot around that time he was a teenager. And then when he was 24 years old, he had the theory of relativity. Basically, Albert Einstein spent about eight years just imagining every day how it would be to travel on the tip of a light beam. And a mystic from 19th century India like Ramakrishna or before him Ram Prasad, another one, they just prayed to a goddess that is black and that black goddess is Kali, the mother of time. And although they didn't know mathematics, although they didn't know any sophisticated physics, they understood time with their heart by simply loving time. Thus, the yogis and the tantrics of India, they discovered this simple truth that love can uh, replace a lot of knowledge. There is the path of jnana, which we teach a lot here in Agama. Agama is very much a school of jnana, where people get astonishing knowledge. There are people who do the first level. We had pupils doing the first level and they told us, I, I learned in this four weeks more than I learned in 10 years of yoga before. I studied yoga and read about yoga. And in just one month I learned more than in the 10 years previous to this. So there is a lot of jnana. We believe in this jnana because our yoga school is also based on intellect, on the power of the mind as well. And at the same time there is bhakti which leads exactly where jnana leads. So there are some people who can get it intuitively via the heart. 
and there are some people that can get it by applying a specific technology of yoga. That's why bhakti yoga fits very much to certain temperaments. Like when you can't do some things, your heart can do them anyway. There is an intuitive way. And of course, this can be interpreted in a superficial way. Like you tell to people, oh, your heart knows, your heart can do. With all due respect, that's nonsense most of the time. Because it is interpreted like uh, the disappointing last episode from the Star Wars. You know, you have Sith Knights trained for 30 years in Jedi arts. And then they are fighting with some little teenager girl, some, what was called, Miss Discord, or whatever, this, I forgot the name, there was another movie about a woman who didn't fit in any category, this modern Mockingjay thing, the Hunger Games type of heroes, all these cartoony teenager heroes, who are fighting from their heart with some trained Jedi swordsman, and mysteriously they manage to survive minutes in a row. No, that's nonsense. Everybody says that if you put it like, well, from your heart you know. doesn't really work that way. From the heart, it doesn't mean as vadistanistic, intuitive, you don't need to do anything thing. Because the people who do it from their heart are people who prayed for 30 years. Who used mantras and prayer for 30 years. And then after 30 years they might walk on water or God knows what they do. And that's why. But doing it from your heart. It doesn't mean that if you do something intuitively. And you didn't study yoga and you don't know about the chakras and the sub-levels or the five bodies or something. It means you are good like this. It still is based on a practice. But it's a different kind of practice. Remember the Roman proverb which said that the bull fights with its horns and the eagle fights with its talons. That simply says that in spirituality everybody has a different talent. And the people who do bhakti yoga, they have another talent than the people who do jnana yoga. And many other categorizations are possible. And that's why it's a well-known thing that some people can relate to the universe, can relate to God, can relate to the shaktis of the universe, to the different forces of the universe, intuitively via the heart, through an aspect of love. Like if you worship Kali, just an example, the first in the line of the ten Mahavidyas, if you worship Kali, it's like Kali is teaching you intuitively a lot of things. It's not, you don't need to study space and time and physics and the six dimensions of the space and time and all those things. Although some people do. Some people do that study, but some people do not. Some people just intuitively have this realization. It's like a knowledge which comes from the heart. And that's why I want you to understand clearly the spirit of bhakti, because bhakti is very, very rewarding and it represents an access directly with the heart. It has been said that if you think about space and time and light speed for eight years, you might understand it if your Ajna Chakra is big like Albert Einstein's. And if you love time for eight years, and if you love it fanatically with devotion, with totality, then you will also get to understand time. Although you will not be able to write mathematical equations about it, but you might have the power 
to control or to understand things of past, present and future as the aspects of time. This being said, Bhakti Yoga is a sort of a path which relies very much on a faith with knowledge. You don't really know need the faith because you have the knowledge and you know the technology. You don't need knowledge to do with the Anabanda. I'm sorry, you don't need faith to do with the Anabanda and to say that it sublimes the energy. But to make some prayer to some imponderable deity and to know that after that, 20 minutes later, your sexual energy will be sublimed and you'll feel light, that's just a matter of confidence. It's a matter of surrender. It is a matter of faith. And that's why Bhakti Yoga definitely fits to some people. And um, it is a yoga which is more irrational, while the Jnana Yoga reflects more the left brain hemisphere, the engineering, technical one. It's like Bhakti Yoga comes more from the right brain hemisphere, and it's more intuitive or irrational. Things are coming up in, an, in a way which is inexplicable by logics. There is no too much logics in the process of love. Although, of course, we from the standpoint of jnana, we could try to explain it. And it is explainable with the difference that the people who do it, they don't really care about the explanation and they don't need the explanation because for them it works anyway. Well, while this bhakti has reached its acme in the, all the monotheistic beliefs, that instead of believing in uh, Zeus and Hermes and Poseidon, and I just quote the Greek gods as a family, as an example, instead of believing in various deities, which are powerful superhuman forms of existence, which can create and destroy and have demiurgical powers and existence, of course, the monotheistic spirituality has summed them up in one. Like there is a god of the gods. There is a deity of the deities, which not coincidentally in India is the name given to Shiva himself. Shiva is called Mahadeva. All the others are Devas and Shiva is Mahadeva, the greater Deva. And Shiva is called also Deva Deva which means the deva of the devas, like it's the next level. And this next, next level is the top of the pyramid, and it's one. And that simply means take your devotion away from various deities, spirits, um, you know, the spirits of nature, the totem of the great bear, the soul of the mushrooms, of the psychedelic mushroom, mescalito, or whatever, and so on. Take your attention from all those partial spirits and focus to the one that masters all of them, to the Deva Deva, the Deva of the Devas. Go to the top of the cosmic pyramid. And this, this became in history, either we talk about the Jewish prophets or we talk about the Vedantins of India or we talk about the um, Christian mystics or we talk about the Sufi and Islamic mystics. This became the root of all the devotionalism and all the surrender and all the bhakti which thus reached its uh, acme. And then there came a further revolution. And this further revolution is what you find a lot of it in Agama, and this is called Tantra Bhakti. We might not have a lot of this uh, Christian-like Bhakti. Occasionally we have heart chakra meditations which are not directly Bhakti, but they are based on it. 
we are having a lot of kirtans and bhajans and we celebrate Shakti festival and Shiva festival and we celebrate a lot of things. And there you can see bhakti in some of these pure forms. And then people are puzzled because they say, if somebody comes and studies Agama and doesn't have a profound knowledge of philosophy, sociology, anthropology, history of religions and so on, it's very difficult because people say we can see that these people are spiritual and they go for a goal, they really have a goal in Sahasrara. And at the same time they have all sorts of deities and things and it's like, what are you guys in Agama? Are you polytheistic people that worship all sorts of idols? Or are you monotheistic people and or something else which we don't understand? This is what in India and in Tibet, the concept exists in Tibet as well, it has been called Tantra Bhakti, that you can give your bhakti to symbols proceeding from Tantra. And that simply says the Tantrics have replaced, not replaced in the meaning of uh, dismissing, But the tantrics have simply said, when you cannot understand things which are too high and too abstract, then you will not be able to have any emotion. And if you don't have any emotion, exception made of maybe of awe or fear or something, then uh, you will not be able to develop a real surrender and a real love. And that's why the tantric tradition, and that's a common knowledge for all the people in Agama who surpass level 5 and who have a profound lecture on this to understand some of the tantric doctrines. And I'm not talking here about the sexual tantra, I'm talking about tantra as a whole, tantra as the big concept of tantra, as the metaphysical concept of tantra. And then there exists, as I said, this tantra bhakti, that the tantric tradition said, if you... If we say now there is something out there which is like an ocean of consciousness and which, you know, people fall with an airplane and doesn't react and people are hit by a tsunami and still doesn't react and there is a second world war and people are taken to Siberia and die in gulags and so on and still that thing doesn't react too much to it. Occasionally here and there little sparks, little miracles or something but 99.99% non-reactive. There is an ocean of consciousness which seems not even to care about who you are and what you do and that ocean of consciousness is bigger to you than an elephant is to an ant. You are a grain of sand in a corner of the universe compared to a sort of an ocean of consciousness which has got very, very big plans and very, very big projects and the fact that five people die in a car crash doesn't seem to be very significant or make a big difference anyway for the galactic plans or for the universal plans of this. And this universal consciousness is perfect, eternal, absolute, transcendental, immutable, infinite. And it's like, what's my attitude to this something which is infinite? Very few people are at the place where they say this eternal, perfect, absolute thing, which is so much bigger, I love it. I surrender to it. I prostrate to it. You know, this is my life. This is the life in my chest. This is... You know, very few people would develop emotions towards that. Because in Vedanta, they are aware of this, and they call it simply that. Tat. Tatvamasi. You are that. And how much do you love it? I don't. I just know that I am that. Like, how much love is there in this? Not much. And thus, 
The tantrics have said, no, 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 no. We want you to have emotions. We want you to do a spirituality which is with tears, with goosebumps, with bhava, as it is called in India, with bhavana, as it's called in Kashmir. You know, like we want something which is uh, with soul and with heart. And that something which goes with soul and with heart has become the Tantra Bhakti, that we can show you symbols of this divine consciousness, parts, like you look at the kaleidoscope, and you just choose a little crumb of that kaleidoscope, and that you can relate to it, because somehow it becomes more easy to understand it. And thus, the Tantric tradition of India and Tibet has generated symbols of the five elements, Symbols of the yin and yang, like Shiva and Shakti, like Ardhanarishvara Shiva with Shakti, and the list could continue, which are like anthropomorphic personalizations. You are just taking an element, like time, and you say, let's make a symbol out of time. Time is black. Like when you go in the universe between the planets and you fall into a black hole, you know, that's what time is. What's time? Nobody can see time. Time is as black as the void of the universe. So we are going to make a force, and because of all these forces are feminine, we are going to make a feminine image, which is black. So we already started designing Kali. We are in the project of designing a goddess, which actually rationally means something very precise. But for the people who adore Kali... It's just a thing coming from the heart. It's just tears and goosebumps and enchantment. And they couldn't care less that why is Kali black. Of course, it happens to fit archetypally. Because if Kali would have been made to be yellow with pink spots, then it, you could have still loved Kali and thought it is time, but it wouldn't have been such a good symbol. It would have been a clumsy symbol. While like this, it's archetypal. It's well thought symbol. <coughs> and what is time? Well, with time, all the girls are going to get wrinkles and sagging breasts, and all the men are going to get hanging testicles and impotence. And so time is a bitch. Time is the worst thing, you know, because with time, everybody gets ugly, wrinkly, tired, without vitality, sick, and so on. So tired, most people who are not having a spiritual vision would say, time we hate it, you know, it's like we are absolutely hating it. We are afraid of it, you know. I have made so much effort to build a pyramid, says Cheops, one of the pharaohs, and this bitch which is called time is destroying it. In a hundred thousand years that pyramid will not be anymore. It will be a mound of rubble. Because of who? Because of Kali, because of time. So is Kali going to be represented sweet or terrible? Of course it's terrible. Time is terrible. Time is killing everything. No? It's like, oh, the Roman emperors, the Roman Republic created a republic. Where is Rome? Where is the Roman Empire? Down in the sand of time. So who is guilty for this? Kali. Time is guilty for this. So all the dreams of the Roman emperors are defeated. By whom? By time. So time is the ultimate disappointer, the ultimate destroyer, the ultimate killer. The one who, you know, people say, I want to build an empire and to live it to my son. And time is laughing uproariously of what foolish dreams you have in front of time. Nothing resists time. 
So of course in this way I'm showing that in India and elsewhere, where they built symbols of the forces of the universe, they wanted to make these symbols very intuitive. For people that didn't even know how to read and write. For people whose maximum spirituality was the fact that they listened to music, to popular music, or the fact that they heard some legends and myths uttered by bards and poets and in ballads, in popular ballads, popular ballads and so on. And therefore, this spirituality had to be brought at a level which is rock bottom. So that the most simple person that has a great heart So in this way, the tantric traditions of India and Tibet, they invented symbols of things which are still very high. Like, if you would imagine for a second, like you know for sure that as an entity, as a, as a sort of a presence, there is time. Nobody denies the fact that there is time, or that there is space, or such factors in the universe. And if you would give a human face to time, you would give it a face like that. That's the conclusion of the Indians after a thousand years of building up that symbol. You would make it as a terrible, fierce woman. Female force. And then, that female force, you would simply tell to people, if you want to understand that, then you have to love it. You have to devote yourself to it. And then we can't explain how. It's not a matter of jnana. It's a matter of bhakti. So if you love it, you will become one with it. Your level of consciousness will be one with it. And thus you will understand. Not technically, not logically, not intellectually. You will understand in a way which is coming from the heart. It will be like a spontaneous right hemisphere type of intuitive knowledge which we can't describe. And in this way, the Tantric tradition have said, you can love Brahman, the Absolute, and you can also love the faces of Brahman, the facets of Brahman, which are more easy to understand. And the question was, yeah, but are these facets of Brahman high and holy and transcendental enough so that they can represent a spiritual guidance for me? Are they like the stars, you know, up there? And the answer was yes, they are. And in this way, there has appeared a legitimate bhakti, that if you don't love God, you can love the archangels of God, and you can love the seraphim and the cherubim, you can love the saints of God, like people in the Catholic Church, they say, Oh, Saint Francis... Pray for us. Like, why don't you pray for you? Why do you ask Francis to mitigate, to intermediate, to go as an in-between for you? Praying to Saint Francis or to the Virgin Mary, who are human beings, is not considered wrong. 
in the Christian church. It's acceptable. Why? Because they are at a level which is spiritual enough. So is time for the tantrics of India. They don't have Saint Francis and Virgin Mary. They have Kali and Tara and those. So these are like the saints of the Hindus. Only they don't represent human beings. They can be represented by human beings as we do it here in the festival. They are not human beings. They are just cosmic forces, principles. And they are such high and essential forces that worshipping them is bringing you closer to God and it's not going to cause any sidetracking, any confusion, any... You are not worshipping the devil, you are not worshipping some inconsequential spirit of the, I don't know, the peppermint bush or something like this, some shamanic, animic thing. You are not losing yourself into inconsequential secondary things. You are going still in the right direction. That's the meaning of the Tantra Bhakti. That if you cannot love Brahman, the Absolute, because it's too abstract, you can definitely love Kali and Tara and Sundari and the rest of them. Because they have a form, a symbolic form. They can be described in words. They represent an actual facet of reality. They represent a fundamental force of this universe. And they are way, 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 way beyond the human beings. Like, try to realize, if there is, I can understand your skepticism, that this is an alien concept for you, and you are still very much in doubt. But if there is a goddess of time, a Kali, how big is she? Like, if you would go 15 galaxies from here, in another galactic, galactic cluster from this universe... Will they still have time? Is time still happening there? Apparently. Apparently, as far as we can see with the telescopes, time is still happening. So, Kali is bigger than the visible universe. Kali is something which exists on a stretch of gazillions of myriads of light years to the left and the right, up and down, back and forth. It's like a sphere which is super gigantic. It's bigger than what we see of the visible universe. We don't know if it actually has an end of any kind. And thus, Kali is so big compared to you and I that Kali does not have if there is such a deity I, give, I want to give you the fair chance of doubting it. It's your right to doubt anything. If you if such an entity exists, that entity is completely uninterested in uh, playing games with you, in cheating you, in corrupting you. In the, like, there is this risk that people say, okay, I can understand that what may worship God, but why worship something less? Because that something less is still that high that it's like 99% close to God. And from there, there is just one little step to go beyond that. That's why, please understand, the tantric tradition doesn't say that the cosmic powers, for example, are God. Or they should replace God. They simply say the cosmic powers are an intermediary between you and God. And it's so much easier for you to see them and understand them and connect to them. And they lead you to God. So the cosmic powers actually have become like a landmark. They are like a... 
are like a foothold. So instead of jumping in one step, you can jump in two steps. First to the cosmic power, and then from the cosmic power, the last 1% there. And thus, they will make everything easier. That's why in India, in Tibet, Tantra Bhakti, it's perfectly justified. You know that the Jewish God was supposed to be a Manipuristic, jealous God who said, you shall not have other gods than me and if you do so, I'm going to kick your ass and curse you for all eternity and all that. Well, even the Jewish God will not get upset if you worship Kali. Because Kali is an aspect of that God. There is no contradiction. Some people who are not used to Hindu tantric spirituality, they find it sometimes like a betrayal. Like I'm taking my adoration and my worship from the one God who deserves it, and I'm giving it to some funny looking multi-armed spider-like looking creatures from India, and I'm becoming a polytheist, and a, it's like it looks like a cultish thing and so on. These things were thought very thoroughly in old days, but then they were not explained very thoroughly because they addressed to people belonging to the masses who didn't need those explanations. In Agama, because we address to people that many of you have university degrees and definitely a positive education in the West, we always feel the need of explaining so that there are no qualms and that there are no second thoughts about these things or guilt of any kind, that we are not attracting you into a cult. The cosmic powers represent ten divisions of the energies of the universe. And it is legitimate to worship them. There is no betrayal in worship. You are not betraying God or moving. You are worshipping God through the cosmic powers. Like the cosmic powers are like the doorways. It's exactly like God is a diamond, a polished crystal with ten faces. Like a stone, a polished gem. And then you look at it and you see triangle, hexagon, this, that, and it's actually the same stone. But if you look at it from different facets, it looks different. That's exactly how it is with the cosmic powers. To reach to something which is perfect, infinite, absolute, beyond everything, you have to understand space, time, and other forces of the universe. Space and time are two very obvious ones. There are ten of them, all in all like this. And this is what... Mahavidyas are. Mahavidyas are the aspects of the divinity and worshipping them is legitimate and it's not a spiritual deviation. And the advantage is that you can relate to them emotionally and this is the essence of the bhakti, of the so-called tantra bhakti. For the rest, I will simply say that this going through the bhakti is a beautiful thing. Swami Shivananda, in some place, I took a couple of quotes here, says, how are bhaktas, people practicing bhakti, people who go on this path of the heart, how are they to be known? Lord Krishna has given a description of them. That's Swami Shivananda speaking. You'll find it in the Srimad Bhagavatam. Quote, and this is the, what Krishna has to say. Krishna, who is supposed to be an avatar, a divine incarnation. Krishna, when he speaks about people who follow the path of the heart, the path of love. He says, they do not care for anything. That says Krishna. They do not care for anything. Their hearts are fixed on me. They are very humble. They have equal vision. They have no attachment towards anybody or anything. 
They are without mindness. They have no egoism. They make no distinction between sorrow and happiness. They do not take anything from others. They can bear heat, cold and pain. They have love for all living beings. They have they I'm sorry, they have no enemy. They are serene. They possess exemplary character. And Shivananda himself describes a tapas which is like the tapas which follows here for some of you, says Shivananda, if you understand this kind of love, here is a sadhana for advanced students. This is highly useful for getting quick, solid progress in the spiritual path. Get up at 4 a.m., start your japa or any asana you have mastered, like take a body posture, a meditation posture, and japa is repeating the mantra of deities. Do not take food or drink for 14 hours. Do not get up from the asana. Control even passing urine till sunset if you can manage. Finish the japa at sunset. Take some milk and fruits after sunset. Householders can practice this during holidays. Practice this once a fortnight or once a month or even once weekly. Like you take a whole day as we take here the night and the part of the day, and you give it to the divine aspects. This is uh, bhakti. This is one of the things which is widely known. Agama did not invent these nights of devotion and other things. It's just we're walking in the footsteps of great traditions that have done these things. Again, I shall not read more. I had a paragraph from the same Swami Shivananda on bhakti yoga, but um, enough of that. Again, here in Agama, you can practice many forms of bhakti yoga in the Mahashivaratri, in the Shakti festival, when we have the bhakti retreat, like it was this year in uh, the springtime in February, and um, or in March actually. And um, I'm simply saying all these things so that um, you know that the path of bhakti is perfectly justified and again to encourage you to practice. Tonight may be a bit of a hard night for some of you and uh, still it's worth it to see exactly the measure of your bhava, of your bhavana. Worship the feminine aspect, worship the shaktis, worship the mother of the universe which is present here and now with you and uh, express this love. On the other hand, we said that some people that do bhakti, they have no jnana. But it also happens that sometimes that people who do too much jnana, they don't have enough bhakti, and comparatively, their life are more dry, and more... This seriousness of knowledge, of only knowledge, is sometimes making the human being lack the myrrh, the joy, the enthusiasm, this effusion of the soul, which for some people is essential. Albert Einstein said, if you cannot get enthusiastic about how mysterious the universe is, to me, you are dead. Unfortunately, many people are getting dead in their souls, even when they have a lot of knowledge, and while bhakti is making that impossible. With bhakti, there will always be a fusion. With bhakti, there will always be enthusiasm. Here, tonight, 
you have a measure of this. And generally in this festival, you have a measure of this. I will agree that for many of you it is new and unusual to worship God under a feminine form. But common sense tells us that the masculine and the feminine are the yang and the yin of the universe. That there does exist a feminine manifestation, a feminine aspect of God. And that feminine aspect of God is called Shakti that we are worshipping for these three days. And it is legitimate, beautiful, rewarding for you to open your heart and to surrender all your woes, all your sorrows, all your lacks. Give them to the Cosmic Mother. Remember what Jesus said. If you who are imperfect and you know how to give to your children what they need to the best of your ability, how much more is God or the Divine Personality capable to cater to that? Like, don't think that the Cosmic Mother doesn't know what you need. And Ramakrishna said, if a child is crying, the mother leaves the knife in the middle of a vegetable while she's cutting it, and she jumps and she goes to see what the child is doing, why the child is crying. So he said in a similar way, the human being who cries for the cosmic mother, the human being that is calling for the cosmic mother, with sometimes with tears, with the cosmic mother answers instantaneously, because that's the nature of the mother. That's the motherly nature of the Shakti. That's why I wish you all an awakening and beautiful experience in connecting, reconnecting, connecting consciously with your cosmic mother and seeing the depth of that connection that we have with the universe. Enough for tonight. The rest is action.